This morning we are in Luke chapter 6. We're beginning Luke chapter 6. We read the first 11 verses, which is our text this morning. And as we continue in our study of Luke's gospel, we note that Luke's emphasis is on Jesus being the promised Messiah and his establishing his kingdom, the kingdom of God on earth. The Jews also sought to bring about a kingdom, but on their own terms. Interestingly, their kingdom objective was nearly is nearly identical to that of modern popular dispensational theology. It's of a Jewish political military world empire ruled from Jerusalem by a Messiah. This curious this is a curious thing they're considering Jesus' refusal to align himself with the Jewish authorities in this matter. And that created a growing tension, making him the object of their hatred and leading to his rejection of crucifixion, as we see very clearly in our text this morning. It's amazing to note the many gospel references to Jesus being are referring to himself as the Son of Man. Matthew has 30 such references. Mark has 14. In Luke, there are 25. And in John, 13. In, there's one in the book of Acts, in the 7th chapter, when Stephen was about ready to be martyred. Just before he was stoned to death, he exclaimed, Behold, I see heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. There in verse number 56. Revelation has two references. The first one in chapter 1, verse 13, where uh, there is the big, John is given the vision of the lampstands, and John saw one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash about his chest. He's the Lord of the churches. In the interlude between the seven plagues finishing the wrath of God on earth in chapter 14, John also has a vision of a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand to reap the harvest of the earth. These references, particularly in Revelation, reflect the vision of Daniel in chapter 7, which the Jews also understood. This was the designation of their Jewish Messiah, but they rejected him, and he suffered at their hands. So we read there in Matthew chapter 26, verse 2, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man, the Son of Man, will be delivered up to be crucified. But that's not the end. And Peter shows us this in, uh, in Acts chapter 2. When uh, after, uh, with, with respect to, the, to Jesus' death 
Peter said that this would, death was according to the infinite plan, the, according, excuse me, to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And even at the hands of wicked men, the unexpected consequence of the Jews' rejection of Jesus Christ was that God would raise him up, loose the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He is God come in the flesh. Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. So his passion and his rejection by the Jews was necessary, a necessary step to his being enthroned as king of kings. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, listen to this, in the new world, the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, and you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I'm looking forward to that day. But notice, Jesus referred to a new world. Not a thousand-year millennial kingdom in the old world. Now, in the previous chapter, chapter 5 here, Luke focused on the authority of the Son of Man. The Father gave all authority to execute judgment to the Son because He is the Son of Man. This is what John tells us in John chapter 5, verse 27. Clearly, everything Jesus did, his power over sickness, sin, and nature, pointed to that reality. However, blind eyes cannot and will not see the truth. As Jesus said, again, in uh, John chapter 9, verses 39 to 41, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who think they see, that, who see, that is, think they see, may become blind. Hearing this, some of the Pharisees that were near him asked, Are, you, are we also blind? <laughs> ah, yeah. Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, that is, if you were truly blind, and you understood your condition, you would have no guilt. But now you say, we see. Ah, uh, no, you don't. So your guilt remains. That's John 9, 39 to 41. Paul called out the Jews there, there in Romans chapter 2. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will, that is, they thought they did, and approve what is excellent because you are in are uh, instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind a light to those who walk in darkness an instructor of the foolish a teacher of children having the law uh, in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth then you then who teach others do you not teach yourself also? Yes. 
No, they were truly blind and their guilt remained. Which then brings us to chapter 6. And in chapter 6, Luke points out then the failure of the Jews with respect to the law, particularly the commandment regarding the Sabbath. And he does this in two incidents. In the first incident, Jesus declared his authority over the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Chapter 6, verse 5. In the second incidence, from 6 to 11, he demonstrated that authority by healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Now, we're going to look at those in a minute, but before investigating these Sabbath incidents, we need to understand the biblical truth about the Sabbath and why the Jews failed to understand the true significance of it. So note here the rest, a rest for the people of God. The fourth commandment simply states, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then there is a brief explanation. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But, on, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. What does that mean? The word Sabbath comes from the, a root word meaning to desist, to cease, and to rest. To stop doing what you're doing and rest. The Sabbath to the Lord your it is a Sabbath to the Lord to the Lord your God. On it you shall cease from your work. Don't do any work. Now the Jews, when they returned from the Babylonian exile, had developed their own system of law keeping to satisfy their own consciences. This was recorded in a in a body of uh, work called the Mishnah, a collection of oral traditions that served as the foundational rules for Judaistic faith and practice. It became a substitute for the scriptures and was condemned by Jesus himself. It was actually produced, it produced a hypocritical religion of vain rule keeping. For example, when the Jews rebuked Jesus for allowing his disciples to eat with ritually unwashed hands. Jesus responded, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For the sake of your tradition you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. That's Matthew 15, 3 verse 3 and, and 6. To support his claim, Jesus then cited uh, the prophet Isaiah. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's Isaiah 29, verse 13. This practice was particularly evident when one examines their rules with respect to Sabbath. Jesus did not keep those rules. So they condemned him as a Sabbath breaker. 
John 15, excuse me, John 5, verse 16 reads, This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And then in Mark chapter 2, verse 24, we read, The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why do do excuse me, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But Jesus was innocent of the charge. His defense was to point out two facts. Number one, it is necessary sometimes to do something on a Sabbath day for the sake of what is good and or in obedience to God. And then he gave the example in from Matthew chapter 12, verse 5. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Ah. Second, he emphasized that the Sabbath was instituted for man's benefit, not the other way around. Observance ought to free people to spiritual liberty, not burden them with oppressive rules. Jesus declared, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In Mark chapter 2, verse 27. This brings us to the true intention of the Sabbath. We say it's interesting how many references there were to the songs we sang this morning in it to this. Why should one cease from normal activity to focus on the Lord? Well, Isaiah chapter fifty-eight, verse eighteen, uh, verse thirteen says, "If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on the holy day." And call the Sabbath a delight and a holy day of the Lord honorable. And if you honor it, not doing your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly. In other words, he says, take this day and focus on me. Honor me in it. Not keep rules. Worship. God himself defined the Sabbath by stating in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them is, and rested on the seventh day. He didn't rest because he was tired. He was rest because he was done. There was nothing more to do. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. The seventh day. Does Sabbath observance then mean following certain rules and doing things or not doing certain things on one day in contrast to the rest of the week? Is there something more involved here that might be uh, that might not appear on the surface? Indeed, I believe there is. Hebrews chapter three and four, and I would encourage you to go and read those two chapters. And think about them in light of this commandment. Keep the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath. 
Exodus 20, verse 8. This text compares Israel's entrance into the promised land with God's promise of eternal rest for the people of God. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, we read, For if Joshua had given them rest, the people that originally came up out of, out of the land of Egypt, he was to lead over into the promised land. But, but if, he, if he had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath, an, an eternal Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest, see, that's the day he rested, has also rested from his own works as God did from his. Think about that. It's not coincidental here that Joshua, you know what the, what the uh, Greek name for Joshua is? Jesus. Jesus. In the Hebrew, Yeshua means Yahweh is Savior. Jesus and Joshua bear the same name. And, and in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Greek word that would be translated Sabbath. Rest. He is God's Sabbath. Note verse 30, then, of, of Matthew 11. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. said, unlike the rules that involved the, the Jewish Sabbath. The author of Hebrews began the discussion about the promised rest by, de de by developing the superiority of Jesus over Moses. Moses is not dishonored. He is highly respected. But in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, the author of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus is superior to, to Moses because Jesus' role over the house of God, God's house, which is the church, was then contrasted with Moses' role over the old covenant house, Israel. Moses served as a steward. In that chapter, Moses was declared to be a faithful steward, a faithful servant. And then verse 12, 2. But on the other hand, Jesus was counted worthy of far more honor because he was a son and the builder of the house. The builder always has more honor. And that is the new covenant house. Therefore, we read, verses 7 and 8, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
The rebellion is a reference to those defiant old covenant people under Moses whom he led out of Egypt. And uh, that's actually citing there from Psalm 95. Here, then, the author of Hebrews contrasts two houses. The rebellious house with those who have come to share in Christ. Verse 14. The rebellious house was composed of those who left Egypt, led by Moses. Verse 16. These died in the wilderness and never made it to the promised rest, the promised land, because of their rebellion. God swore, they shall not enter my rest. Again, citing from, from the Psalms there. Said it twice. Verse Chapter 3, verse 11, and chapter 4, verse 3. So then what does this have to do with the fourth commandment? And now here's, our, here's, here's where we're getting this, tying this together. Note what's written here in Hebrews 4, chapter, verses 2 to 10. Listen to this. For good news has come to us as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. That is, those referring to the promises. The promises were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. Although his works were done for finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of a seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, again, he appointed a certain day. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The author of Hebrews clearly related the promised land rest with the seventh day rest of the fourth commandment. And it is the eternal rest of the people of God in the new heavens and the new earth. So the one day and seven was designed to remind us of that eternal rest promised to the persevering believer in Christ. Sabbath pictures rest in salvation and in Jesus. True believers, and then, and then here we, we read this, are to strive to enter that rest. Strive, he commands it. Strive to enter that rest. That's verse... 11, literally that means be diligent. It's an oxymoron. How can you strive to rest? How do you strive to rest? To, and it's by faith to enter that rest when they cease from their own works as exemplified by God who ceased from his. Stop trying to be a Christian and be one. <laughs> Give diligence to stop trying to be a, a Christian and be one. 
See, that's the emphasis there. Remember, Sabbath means to desist, to cease, and to rest from labor. Sabbath equals salvation. Laboring, as I said, laboring to rest, there means, it seems like an oxymoron, but there must be an earnestness. But that earnestness is created by God, not you. It's produced in the heart of his people. And this earnestness is the need to seek the Lord with the whole heart. Psalm 14 is very interesting in this relationship. For And we're not going to read the whole thing. But I just want to point out a couple of things in verse number 2. In verse number 2 of Psalm 14, we find here the Lord looking upon the children of man to see if there were any who understood and endeavored to seek him. But no, he says, there were none. They all turned aside, refusing to call on him there in verses 3 and 4. So since the Lord regards only the generation of the righteous, verse 5, we have a problem. And if there's none righteousness, none righteous, what will he do? The psalmist pleads, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. And it did. Jesus Christ. That's where he came from. Then the psalmist reveals his faith and hope in verse 7. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Yeah, and it is only the Lord who brings this Sabbath rest, this salvation, and only those who come to it by faith in Jesus Christ are granted that rest. It is all of grace, not, not, even, not of works, and even faith is the gift of God. On the other hand, the Jews resisted, believing that their works were enough to recommend them to God. And Jesus said, no. That brings us to then uh, the text of the morning. Don't worry, I'm not going to keep you past noon. This is our day. We got an extra hour of sleep last night. That's good, isn't it? I'm, I'm happy about that. So the, what we have here is the uneasy tension then between Jesus and the Pharisees as described there in chapter 5. This this tension now hardens into a controversy over one of the main institutions of Judaism, the Sabbath. I like what the Expositor's Bible Commentary stated here. It says, The Gospels list three Sabbath controversies. Two occur in the Synoptics and one in John. In each case, Jesus allows or even stimulates the controversy, providing several uh, types of response. First, the Sabbath is for man's benefit. We noted that in uh, Mark 2, 27. Man was created for the Sabbath, not the Sabbath for man. I mean, the, the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. I get that right. Uh, secondly, that... that uh, the Son of Man, Jesus, is Lord of the Sabbath. That's in our text, chapter 6, verse 5. And also, then thirdly, in also our text, verse 9, the Sabbath is for need, helpful deeds 
the omission of which would be evil. Think about that. Jesus said, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And then fourthly, the Father works even on the Sabbath, and so may the Son. There in John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, but Jesus answered them, My Father is working, has been working, and continues to work until now, and I am working. So the first uh, Luke incident opens with the disciples going through the grain fields, taking some heads of grain and eating it. They would pluck a grain and rub it with their hands, blow the chaff away, and eat the grain. That practice was permitted in the law. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25 says, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. But the issue here was that they were doing it on the Sabbath, which they, the Mishnah, remember I talked about the Mishnah. The Mishnah forbade threshing of any kind on the Sabbath. Oh, the rules that the Mishnah laid out about how far you could walk on the Sabbath and what you could wear and, and everything. So Luke then began the discussion by stating on a Sabbath day, on a Sabbath while he was going, on a Sabbath. And it was interesting to kind of read what uh, commentators have stated about this. Some have, a, uh, have attempted to make more of it than is necessary. I think if you just compare the opening verse of each of these two segments, you'll see it on a Sabbath day and on another Sabbath day. But uh, they want to make more out of it than uh, that. In fact, some manuscripts read on the second first Sabbath. On the second first Sabbath. Huh? By which they mean on the second Sabbath after the first. So they're trying to, in, to suggest that, that here we have two Sabbaths in one week. A Sabbath of a feast and then the regular Sabbath. But I, I think we just need to accept what, uh, what it says. On a Sabbath, verse 1, such and such occurred. And then on another Sabbath, verse 6, Ver, uh, such and such occurred. This detail was necessary to set the stage for the confrontation that followed. The Pharisees observed the disciples and they asked them, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Picking grain, heads of grain, eating it with their hands. Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus stuck up for them and responded with a twofold answer. First, Jesus noted 
that eating something forbidden by the law was, nece was not necessarily wrong, even if in violation of the law, if it served a higher purpose. And what's interesting is Jesus pointed out something that was far more disturbing, which is recorded in scriptures. 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 6. Here we have a greater, what would be considered a greater objection. What if the, what, uh, what would these Pharisees have done if the disciples had gone into the temple and picked up loaves of showbread or bread of the presence and took it out of the temple and ate it? But God permitted David to do it. Not only did he do it, he gave it to his followers and, to, and they ate of it too. Bread that was for the priests only. This observation was not intended to alter the law or to teach that one could flagrantly dismiss the regulations established by God. Rather, Jesus pointed out that in some circumstances the violation of rules was permitted to meet a real need. This illustration was also appropriate because Jesus was David's greater son, the messianic descendant of David. And the point is that ceremonial rites being a means to an end must give way to higher moral law. And Luke records no objection from the Pharisees. The second answer then pointed to Jesus' claim to unique messianic authority as the Son of Man. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That should, that should settle it right there. Verse 5. That would end all protest. So now in the second incident. Recorded there in chapter 6. Verses uh, 6 through 11. Jesus provoked the discussion. He was teaching in a synagogue. And a man with an atrophied and useless hand was attending. Jesus was aware that the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to catch him in another Sabbath violation. Would he heal on the Sabbath? And here Luke again reveals the divinity of Christ. He knew their thoughts. Verse 8. So he called to the man with the withered hand to come and to stand before him. And then Jesus asked the Pharisees, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Verse 9. Scanning their faces in the deafening silence, Jesus said to the man, Stretch out your hand. Verse 10. And he did so, and his hand was fully restored. The response of the Jews was fury. They were beside themselves with rage. 
Jesus had commanded the impossible. Which of any one of those Pharisees or scribes could say to a man with a withered hand, stretch it out and it would be healed and whole? And they saw Jesus do it and still they were angry because he did it on the Sabbath day. Now here's, here's something else. The man's condition was not life-threatening. Could he not have waited? It was not, crit it was not a critical case. He wasn't going to die with that withered hand that day. Neither would his case or his condition have gotten any worse without immediate attention. If that had been the case, rabbinical law would have permitted that such a healing. But Jesus chose a situation in which a man was not critically ill, nor was in any, any immediate danger, and said to him, be healed. On the other hand, if an illness could be healed, but was not, would that not be evil? Withholding the healing? Especially if withholding it would prove unlawful? Yeah. If he had not healed him, wasn't that unlawful? If he could and didn't? Ah, see, Jesus trapped these Pharisees and proved that they were hypocrites. And their response was not repentance and remorse, but rage. And that, and that, according to Luke, was where they started to plot against him. And this plotting would only grow in intensity and until it resulted in his death. A plan God executed for the healing of his people from their sins, leading to their rest in the eternal Sabbath of a new earth. Let me say in conclusion, we close with a question. Do you fear that you may not reach that Sabbath rest? Hebrews points out, For good news came to us, just as to them, that is Israel in the wilderness, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they, the promises of rest, were not united by faith in those who heard them. For those only who hear and believe the promises enter the rest. Have you heard and believed the promises? Do you believe? Are you striving to enter that rest? Father, thank you for the word. Lord, uh, these incidents recorded in the Gospel of Luke are indeed remarkable. And they point out the, the futility of religion in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ who is Lord and Savior of His power, His wisdom, His authority. We honor Him. He, in, he is truly indeed worthy of more honor than Moses whom the Jews followed with absolute devotion because, Lord, the truth of the matter is he is the sign and builder. Oh, that we may honor the sign.
And may, Lord, we strive to enter into that rest by, Lord, continually seeking you. We want to know you, Lord. We want to follow you. We want to love you. We want to serve you. We want to honor you. And we want our lives to honor you. And we want, Lord, our church to honor you. And we ask this in Jesus' name.